says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And Father, we humbly ask now as we continue to worship by opening the word of God that your Holy Spirit would prepare us, that Lord, you take away the distractions from our hearts and minds and let us as an act of worship give you the fullness of our attention. Please prepare us, Lord. And we ask that you would now speak to us by the power and person of your spirit. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in life, there are obviously numerous things that we spend time and effort doing, which we find may not ultimately yield beneficial results and kind of afterwards we think man I spent so much time or energy and effort doing that and it doesn't seem like it really resulted in anything afterwards but wouldn't it be great if you knew that there was something that you can do that promised absolute assurance of always being profitable that you could be confident that if you do that that it will certainly yield something profitable and a, a beneficial result. Well, I want you to know that the Bible says there actually is something that does qualify, and that is working for the Lord. Working for the Lord. That is serving the Lord and serving the cause of Jesus Christ. The Bible says is never profitless. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 15. It states it this way. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, there's lots of things we labor at that can end up being vain in the results, and sometimes we have no control of it. But the Bible tells us that whenever we labor in the Lord, for the Lord, in the Lord's purposes and work, that that is never vain. It's never empty. It's never profitless. It always has value because it matters to God. And God always brings about some measure of fruit in regards to his influence when we serve his purposes. So there's no greater thing we could give ourselves to, to be steadfast in, to be immovable, to keep doing than doing whatever it is we would do to work for our Lord in some way. When today's passage equips us regarding that issue, regarding the work of the Lord or the work of what we might call ministry, Christian service in different capacities. And again, let me say, we are all called as God's people to participate in Christian service, in ministry, to some degree and to some capacity. In the background of what we were looking at last time, Paul ended off in verse 23 <clears throat> speaking about how he had faithfully preached the gospel, he said, of which he had become a minister. 
that by appointment that was his calling. And in the verses ahead, Paul's now going to describe, as you can tell from what we read, some aspects of his own personal ministry work. And as we listen to Paul describe to the Colossian believers some of the elements of his own spiritual service and Christian labor, from Paul's words here, I think we get some insight regarding our experience and our approach in ministry. And we can learn from Paul what really, I think, proper and we could say true Christian ministry or what true Christian service really should include. You know, what does Christian service, what does biblical, true, proper Christian ministry look like? What really should it include? Well, this text answers some of those questions for us from a scriptural perspective regarding having become a minister by God's appointment, which he said in verse 23, I, Paul, became a minister. He then goes on, verse 24, to say, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, excuse me, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The first thing we note here regarding true or proper Christian ministry and what it should include, the, the emphasis Paul's making in verse 24 is that we should be willing to suffer personally in order to help people. That we should be willing to suffer personally in order to help people to some degree. Listen, that was Jesus's greatest demonstration of how he lived out his life in the body of flesh as a man. Jesus's willingness his to enter into our world here and to endure a measure of personal suffering is really what contributed to us being helped. Jesus's method of ministry, Jesus' model of service was that he was willing to endure certain forms of personal suffering in his life as a man so that we could be benefited, so that we could experience help in our lives. In fact, we see the scripture tell us this directly. In Mark chapter 8, it says that Jesus began to tell the disciples how the Son of Man, he said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders. And then he spoke of ultimately being crucified. But again, Jesus said, I must suffer. It was a part of the process. I must suffer many things. I must suffer rejection, persecution, mistreatment, ultimately crucifixion in order for us to be helped and benefited. It tells us Jesus himself said in Luke 24 that thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead the third day so that repentance and remission of sins could be preached in his name to all nations. Again, it was was necessary, Jesus said, in order to preach forgiveness, this was necessary that I would suffer certain things. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. Again, Jesus' willingness to suffer as a man, redemptively, His willingness to embrace some personal suffering is what then made available forgiveness of sin. Don't you appreciate that? Reconciliation with God, the assurance of eternal life and intimacy and a relationship with God. Those were the byproducts of Jesus' suffering. So Paul is now saying in that vein, he's saying it's my honor as a representative of the Lord. It's my honor now as a man, as a minister, as a servant of Christ my Savior 
to suffer even as Jesus did to some degree in order to help and serve, he says there, verse 24, his body, that is the church. Again, the believers, the body of Christ. He says, Paul says, it's my honor now to do the same. He says, as I suffer and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now listen, when we read verse 24, we have to be very careful here. Certainly Paul, when he says, I'm willing to suffer to fill up in my flesh what is lacking the afflictions of Christ. Certainly Paul's not talking about needing to further suffer physically himself as a man in some way to uh, you know, finish or complete the sufferings of Christ. That is if somehow the sufferings of Jesus in his flesh as a man weren't sufficient to bring atonement for sin or to ultimately bring salvation. And there are those who convey certain ideas doctrinally among what are the realms of the church that give people the idea that even after you die, you need to go somewhere and suffer a little bit longer to finish atoning for, for sins to hopefully then somehow get to eternity. Listen, the Bible knows nothing of that. What the Bible teaches is the sufficiency of the sufferings of Jesus Christ once for all. And we can't take this statement of Paul here to convey that somehow he had to suffer a little bit more as a man in order to be able to further atone for sin. Look, that would totally contradict everything Paul himself and all the other New Testament writers record regarding the sufferings of Jesus being totally complete, sufficient. That, that what Jesus did, we call it the, the, the efficacious work of Christ, the effective, finished, completed suffering of Jesus Christ once for all. We just read Paul in the prior verses. He'd be contradicting himself. He said that God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And he says that that reconciliation came, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. In other words, Paul was saying what Jesus did was sufficient to reconcile us to God. When Jesus died, he himself said as he suffered, it is finished. Nothing left need be done. No suffering of man could atone for their sin. No suffering of man need to atone for their sin. There's nothing that we can do as a work or an achievement or, or by somehow you know, going through forms of suffering. And this was part of what even the, the, the Gnostic heresy was of that day, that asceticism, that if you just suffer and torture your body, somehow you could do certain things to further atone for the sins of your soul somehow. Listen, Hebrews 9 and 10 say Christ suffered once for sins, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So please be careful. Paul is not saying here that he needed to afflict himself or that he needed to somehow finish atoning for the sufferings that Jesus didn't complete. That would contradict scripture. Salvation is a gift by grace. It's not of works. Uh, together with that, the Greek word Paul uses there in verse 24 for afflictions of Christ, that term afflictions in the language is never used anywhere in the New Testament to refer to the physical sufferings of Jesus in atoning for us by dying on the cross. It, it, that term afflictions, it's never used in the Greek language when Jesus' sufferings are referred to for atoning on the cross and death. It, it's a term that's used to speak of mistreatment in your body as you live out maybe persecution or dealing with hard things. That's how that term's used. And thirdly, let me say this. Paul's not speaking here about salvation. He's speaking about service. This is what he's referring to. So when he says, I fill up in my flesh what's lacking regarding the afflictions of Christ, 
The word fill up that he uses there was a term in the Greek that spoke of how soldiers would come along and fill in the potholes on a road so that the passage of others could be more easier down that road. And what Paul, in essence, is saying is Jesus came, he fully suffered and did what he did so that we could have a roadway and access directly to God. And Paul says, what I want to do now is I'm willing to take a hit or two for the team and suffer on occasion when necessary to help bring people closer to God. I'm willing to fill up any hardship, anything that's left that needs to be suffered for the cause of Christ, Paul's saying, to take one for the team now myself, just like my Lord took the most for the team. He says, I'm willing to suffer myself some. If that could help fill in the potholes and make things easier for people to be brought to God in relationship and to assist people in his ministry and service for the church. Again, Paul, notice, did not suffer for himself to make his life better. Paul says, I'm willing to suffer, he says, for you. Again, a lot of times we're willing to suffer things if there's some benefit for us in it. Paul says, no, I'm willing to suffer for the benefit of others, to help fellow Christians, to uh, be effective in ministry. And look, this is a reminder to us regarding serving the Lord or ministry. Ministry is not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be easy. Fruitful ministry, effective ministry, it's, it's going to be challenging. It's going to require hardships and challenges, maybe mistreatment and personal suffering. Have you ever tried to tell somebody that's not saved about Jesus? I'm sure there was a little bit of suffering attached to that. A little persecution, mockery, whatever, you know, as you try to serve. It's going to result, if we're going to care for people, listen, if you're going to care for people, it is going to result in being at times hurt, mistreated, dealing with certain things. This is just a part of caring for people. You know, wounded animals bite. There's a lot of hurting wounded people. And if we're going to be willing to step into helping people, serving people, part of that is we're going to deal with some personal suffering. We need to be willing to endure some suffering that's attached to serving people. It's a part of ministering in the same way that our Lord Jesus ministered. Peter said this in his writing, 1 Peter 2, 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Following his steps, being willing, Lord, nothing I could suffer for you would ever compare to what you already suffered for me. Lord, it's my honor to have that badge of honor times to suffer something, whatever it may be, in order to be effective in serving the body of Christ or serving in any way to help others. The second thing we see of true and proper Christian ministry, what it should include, I think in verse 25 is this, and that's servanthood and stewardship. Proper and true Christian ministry and Christian service includes not just suffering, but secondly, in verse 25, we see servanthood and stewardship. Paul says there, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. So Paul says first, I became a minister. Now, usually when we hear the word in our current culture, minister, we usually envision in our mindset somebody in an official role, in a position, somebody that holds maybe like a, you know, a, a, a position within the local church, a minister, uh, a pastor, whatever. But the word minister that Paul uses there in his writing in verse 25, it's just a term that actually just means servant. 
It actually was a term in the original language that spoke of a slave who waited on the tables of his master. And I think what a great description. The idea there is, is if you could illustrate, like a server in a restaurant. Right? If, if you work as a server or a waiter, waitress, or you go out to eat, that server in a restaurant, what they basically do is they care for, they're supposed to anyway, they care for and they attend to the needs of the guests that are assembled there at that table. And their responsibility and what they're to do if they're to be a good server in that restaurant is to do what? Is to be sensitive to see what the people need, to pay attention to wait on them, to care for them, to bring to them what would be helpful or, or you know, what would make their experience better, to remove things out of their way, right? That would, that would interfere with their... And, and this is really, I think, a great picture of what true servanthood, what true ministry is like, being like a table waiter, paying attention to the needs of those around us and doing what we can to attend to those needs, to help those needs... Someone the Lord calls to serve his people in loving and helpful ways. That's what, that's what a, listen, that's what a true minister is supposed to be. When you hear the word minister, you should hear the word servant. Not, you know, not, wow, he's a minister and boy, you should watch him. I mean, just, he is like the most eloquent presenter. Listen, I'm not saying that a pastor teacher shouldn't be a good Bible teacher. I'm not saying that someone shouldn't have that gift as well. But above all else, minister, ministry means servanthood. It means servant above all else. Not just someone who's a cruise director or a fantastic communicator or, or you know, great. It's a servant. Paul says, I became a minister, a servant, a table waiter. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was? Jesus himself, the model of his ministry was what above all else? Servanthood. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life away, he said. We see Jesus in John 13 displaying his love through what? Humble servanthood, washing the feet of the disciples that are gathered there around him. What's he doing? He's addressing needs he saw to make the lives of people better. Addressing needs he saw to make the lives of people better. So again, being a minister, please hear me. Whether you're here or you're in another congregation, in an official setting, let me say this. Being a minister is not about controlling people. It's about caring for people. That's what being a minister is about. Being a minister should never be about having an audience to perform for and trying to perform in a way that you can increase your followers. Being a minister should be about helping whoever God, by His grace, would allow to assemble and whoever assembles that you're trying to impart something by speaking to them and into their lives something of guidance and encouragement and imparting something helpful. I pray and pray for me by the grace of God. I pray that when I communicate on behalf of, of God's people and the role that he's allowed me to serve in, that I, my biggest prayer is, Lord, I don't want to impress people. I want to impart something to people. <laughs> I, you know, people can go pay for a show if they want to be impressed. But I want to impart something to people that's helpful, beneficial, nourishes their soul, strengthens them, equips and edifies them. So again, if we want to do Christ-like ministry in whatever way God allows us to serve, and there are many ways to function in the service of God, we, we want to, above all else, seek to function like a servant in the church. 
to, to find ways, envisioning yourself, again, like a server in Jesus' house where all of his guests assemble. And just being conscious of observing needs, how to wait on people, care for people, give attention to people, doing what you can to help them have a better experience by serving them. Paul also indicates that he sensed not only that he was a servant, but that he had a stewardship in verse 25. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you. And the word stewardship speaks of having a responsibility to faithfully manage what doesn't belong to you but belongs to someone else. That's what being a steward is. A steward is someone entrusted with handling something on behalf of someone else. That's what a steward is. And Paul says, I have a stewardship from God. I'm handling things that God owns that belong to God. From Jesus' perspective, it's blood-bought people. It's redeemed souls. And Paul says, I have a stewardship. I'm entrusted. I've received a stewardship from God given to me, he says, for you. Again, Paul was not serving in the way that he was because he decided to be what he was or I do this because it's fun or fulfilling for me. He says, no, no, no. This is what I understand. God's entrusted me with something. Paul didn't just say, what would be the funnest thing to do? I mean, let's see, what, 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 are, the, what are the ways to serve in the church? I mean, you could do this, you could do that. That one looks the funnest. I mean, that, that would be fun. Or that would be fulfilling. Paul said, no, I've been entrusted with something. God has given me an assignment. He's entrusted me with something that's very precious that belongs to him. People he loves and, and that he wants the best for. He realized he had been assigned. And I think... Paul Grass, that's a heavy responsibility, man. That's a huge awareness to grasp that God has given us the opportunity to touch his kingdom, to, to interact with his people, to serve them in any way. Again, whether we're serving the little precious lambs of a young age in children's ministry, or whether we're serving in some way, Lord, I, I'm called to, you know, to, to make things clean and tidy so that when people come in, they feel really comfortable. Or, or I'm called to be at the door and, and to greet these people because I'm the first person that people see when they come to the house of God and I will be the first impact and influence. And Lord, I'm an usher greeter. So I want to make people when they come through the door feel like God is really glad that you chose to come to church today because you could have done anything else. And by the way I greet them and how I interact with them, that I can be the first person to begin to maybe sense, oh man, as they walk by afterwards, I should pray for that person. I sense maybe you know they're here, but something's going on. And, and whatever way it may be, to realize we have this incredible stewardship from God, this important thing, and that we would see it as a stewardship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God and moreover it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. See, listen, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what we have the privilege to get to do for the Lord, whatever has been given us by God to serve in any capacity of Christian service, it's important that we have this perspective that it, man, this is a stewardship. It's not just, oh, well, it's something I signed up for because I needed a little help with it. No, it's a stewardship from God. God's given us a stewardship to serve in that way, to help in the form we do. And 1 Peter 4 says, each one has received a gift. 
Therefore, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. How things change, how the level of faithfulness and thoroughness and efficiency goes up when we realize I have a stewardship from God. It makes us want to be faithful in whatever we're doing and that we want to do it in a way that it's to the glory of God and the greatest help to people. Well, Paul is going to go on now in verse 25 through 27 to describe his own personal stewardship for him personally as an apostle and a minister as he was establishing churches and preaching New Testament doctrine. Paul mentions his stewardship. Go on with me in verse 25. He says it was to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, non-Jews, which is, here's what the mystery was, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So thirdly, we learn here from Paul regarding his ministry and what true, proper Christian ministry should include. And I think what we see here is that it involves revealing to people the plan of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. Revealing to people the plan of God. That's what Christian ministry should certainly include. Paul knew that his personal commission from the Lord was, he says, to fulfill what the word of God predicted and said that God wanted for his people. And that was making known to mankind these multiple mysteries that would come to pass of the plans and purposes that God had. Now, whenever Paul uses in the New Testament, he uses the word in verse uh, uh, 26, and then again he uses it in verse 27. Whenever you see this term mystery, it's not referring in the way we might naturally think of when we first hear the word mystery. We hear the word mystery and we think of something mysterious. You know, something kind of hard to figure out, like like, a, like trying to solve a murder mystery. Wow, it's mysterious. Wonder who the real killer was. And it's kind of a, you know, hard to figure out. It's a mystery or the mystery of something in science that's just so amazing. It's like a mystery how all that works. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it's not speaking of something mysterious. It's referring in the New Testament to something that was once hidden and covered for a time but now it has been revealed or disclosed. It's been made known. Something that was kind of covered over, but now it's been revealed by the, the revelation. I guess a way to illustrate that is picture in your mind a statue standing up here and, and a, like a sheet draped over the statue. Well, you know something's there, but while the sheet is draped over it, you, you can't quite see and understand what's under because it's hidden over with the sheet. But then there comes that day of unveiling where they, right, drum roll, and they pull back the sheet, and now you can clearly see it's revealed what has always been there, but oh, okay, now I see it. Now it's been revealed. It was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. We have a biblical definition of what this New Testament mystery works like, if you look at verse 26, he says the mystery which was, look at it, hidden from ages and from generations in the past, but now has been revealed to his saints, to New Testament believers on the other side of the work of Jesus Christ. So again, certain plans God has always had in the works for the future with Jesus Christ coming. But in times past, 
in the days of the Old Testament and prior to the coming of Christ, those things weren't always fully seen. They weren't clearly revealed. There were lots of things that God has always had intended with the coming of Jesus Christ, certain truths and experiences that at one time weren't revealed in prior generations with ancient Israel in the time of the, you know, the prophets and the Old Testament figures. And really, they would not have fully grasped those things prior to the coming and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But now that Christ has come, those things that were once hidden, the sheet's been pulled back and all the dots are now becoming connected. And now, oh, this is what God always intended. This is what the plan of God... And, and now these things have been revealed, these, some of these New Testament mysteries, these deeper, fuller experiences humanity could have with God through what Christ has accomplished, the fact that God would in Christ, for example, join together Jew and Gentile in one spiritual family in this thing that we call the church. Paul explains this one particular ministry he knew he was to reveal. Look at it in verse 27. He says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So one of these mysteries that was revealed by Paul that wasn't seen in prior generations, Paul says, I know one thing God wills for me to make known, and that's this is that there is this incredible opportunity now for people to experience Jesus Christ dwelling within their lives. That God wouldn't just be with people, but that God would actually be within people. That he would actually impart his very life through the person and the work of his son Jesus. He declares this spiritual truth of the experience of Christ being in believers. He says, Christ in you, that is the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ dwelling and residing inside of our lives. That as we open up our hearts as you would to Jesus Christ, through his spirit, he comes and he takes up residence within us and dwells within us. That he's permanently and continually there living inside of us. In John chapter 14 and 15, if you remember, as Jesus was talking to his disciples, they were having such a difficult time hearing Jesus say to them, I'm going to depart from you soon and I'm going to return back to my Father in heaven from where I came. And remember, this was like wigging the disciples out. I mean, they were having such a hard time hearing this because they had been with Jesus for three plus years. His presence was with them all the time and he was, he was kind of a helpful guy to have around. And they became very dependent upon Jesus. If they didn't understand it, Jesus explained it. If they needed something, Jesus provided it. If somebody hassled them, Jesus protected them. Jesus helped them tremendously in every way with their relationship with God. And then Jesus kept saying, but I'm going away. But it's actually going to be better, he kept saying. It's, going to, it's to your advantage that I go away. And then he started saying things like, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And then they were, wait, 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 you're going, you're coming, you're coming, you're going. And then he starts saying, I'm going away, I'm coming back, and I'm going to be in you. Now you're coming and going, and you're going to be in us. And what they weren't grasping is Jesus saying, look, I'm going away. My physical bodily presence of living as a man, that's going to come to an end when I die for sins and I resurrect and ascend to the Father. But by the Spirit of God, when the Spirit is then given, I'm going to come back and spiritually, I'm going to dwell within you. And my presence will be in you spiritually. My life will be imparted to you. See, when Jesus was in a physical body for a time, understand, his presence in ministry was limited to locality. 
When he lived in a body of flesh, he could only be in Bethany and he couldn't be in Jerusalem. He was limited. But Jesus was saying, it's going to be better when I go away because when I come back through the presence of the Spirit, he's saying, now I can dwell in every believer, everywhere, all over the planet, and I'm not limited to a physical body of flesh. I can offer my presence to everyone. And this is the glory of the New Testament mystery, that Christ is in us and with us. Romans 8, Paul speaks of how the Spirit of God takes residence inside the believer, and then he refers to the Spirit of God as the Spirit of Christ. And he says there, Christ is in you. You know, one of my favorite Bible verses, Paul's declaration in Galatians 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This, this incredible reality that the Christian life is truly about, listen, not trying to act like Jesus. It's not, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to do this religious thing more now and like Jesus is, like he's the one I follow, I go by his teachings. Listen, the Christian life is not about following religious regulations or following the teachings of Jesus per se. It's about opening your soul and inviting the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ into your life to have total intimacy and oneness with you. Total intimacy and oneness. Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. That Jesus actually offers his life to us, Christ in you, inviting the presence of Jesus in to take over the lordship and the rulership on the throne of your heart. That's what Christianity is about. That's what it means to be a Christian, yielding to and allowing Jesus to now live his life through your body. Jesus in you, empowering you and enabling you to live like a Christian should. You know, uh, in all honesty, think of this. Who better to help you to be Christ-like than Christ himself? I think sometimes the problem is, is we're trying so hard to be Christ-like and Jesus is saying, listen, there's not room for two Christians in this body. Would you stop? Let me live my life through you. I can help you be Christ-like. Just yield to me. Submit to me. Realize my presence is within you and the Christian life is about yielding to the living reality of the presence of the Christ himself, Jesus, the risen one, living within you. Who better to defeat sin in my life than Jesus himself, who never sinned, never failed, never gave into a temptation? Who's not said before, Lord, I just, I can't, I just can't get victory in this area. And then he goes, right, you can but I'm, I'm actually within you. And I've had victory over every sin. I can give you victory. Let me give you the victory over that sin, over that struggle. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we can't even dethrone ourselves. Oh, I don't want to be so selfish. I'm trying to dethrone myself. Self can't dethrone self. But if you enthrone Jesus Christ on the Lord of your heart as a king, he won't take any other king on the throne. This is the reality of what the Christian experience is to be. It's not trying to imitate to live like a Christian by Christian rules. It's knowing the life of Christ is within you and letting him live his life through you, using your body now, his physical presence on this earth to express himself. Paul also says in verse 27 there, Christ in you and I is the hope of glory. How do you have hope, the absolute assurance of glory ahead? 
of the eternal experience of glory. How do you have that? Well, you have that assurance by having Christ in you because he's the eternal son of God. And so as Jesus imparts his life to you, he imparts the eternal quality of life. Jesus himself is our hope of glory. He's our hope of experiencing eternal life. In 1 John, John says it this way. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. That life is in his son. He who has the son has eternal life. The idea is he who does not have the son of God does not have this life, John says. He says, this is the way to know. If you have Jesus Christ, he's the one who imparts eternal life because his eternal quality of life is given to you when he gives you his life. If you receive Jesus So the question this morning is this, listen, whether you've been coming to church your whole life long or you, my question simply is this, do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Not are you trying to be Christian-like, not are you trying to get to know Christianity, biblically God's plan for you is to have Jesus in your life, to be married to Jesus Not to try and imitate Jesus, act like Jesus. It's to let Jesus into your life. Have you truly said, Jesus, I invite you into my life. This is what the plan of God is for you. To have that intimate relationship and let Jesus live together with you internally in your life. That's no doubt why Paul, I think, goes on in verse 28 to declare his primary ministry focus by saying, verse 28, regarding Jesus, him we preach warning every man and teaching all man, every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, the idea is mature, in Christ Jesus. So Paul specifically references here how he conducted his ministry and what his goal was in ministry as a minister of the gospel, as a leader in the church. Again, we learn more, I think, as I said, of what proper, true ministry is to include. And this is what I would say, again, if you're taking note, this is very evident from verse 28. True ministry should include, here are these two words, presenting Jesus. Presenting Jesus. Paul says there in verse 28, Him we preach. What Paul focused on proclaiming and presenting to people was who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus could do and would do for people, whether it was preaching to the unsaved, teaching Christians or offering counsel, he always presented to people Jesus as the answer, Jesus as the need, Jesus as the solution, pointing people to the Lord, directing them to the Lord. Paul did not preach politics. Paul didn't preach you know, uh, psychological ideas or programs and self-help methods. He didn't preach you know, keys to success or motivational ideas for happiness. He didn't preach that kind of stuff. He didn't even preach, listen, some particular church. Or if you're with a part of this church or, or that spiritual group, that's the key to getting really spiritual. And I think we even need to be careful of that as local churches that we're not presenting our church, that somehow we have the corner on the market. Paul didn't preach this church is the key to spiritual success. Paul did not preach or focus on, on, on again, really great stories or illustrations or jokes. He said, it's him. That's the focal point. The focal point is presenting Jesus to people, presenting the Lord, pointing everyone to him. That's what it's about. 
I love in Acts chapter 8 where it says that Philip was pulled away from a revival. He's sent to the middle of a desert where he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who's opening the word of God trying to understand things. And it says this in Acts chapter 8. It says that Philip went up to him and beginning with the scripture where the man was trying to figure things out, it says this, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. Ladies and gentlemen, what a great focus and agenda. I pray that we would be a church. I pray we would always be a church that that would be what we are. Him we preach. That, that, that we, we just present Jesus to people. And who we are or how we're doing or whatever we're doing, that, that we would just present Jesus to people. Wanting, again, to be a gateway for them to encounter Jesus to just meet the Lord and then to continue to be brought back to the Lord. Another aspect of Paul's ministry, which is ministry and what it should include, is verse 28, he speaks of counseling and instructing people to see them mature spiritually. So again, this is something ministry should include as well. Counseling and instructing so people can become mature. He says in verse 28, he says, we do this also teaching every man and warning every man, he says, so that we can present everyone perfect in Christ. Again, we don't want to just see people meet Jesus. We also want to see people mature in their relationship with Jesus and grow and develop. Paul says we want to present people perfect in Christ. That word perfect doesn't mean flawless, the word used there in the original language is a term that spoke of completeness or maturity, coming to a more perfected state, a, a more fully developed. That's the idea, maturity or development, wanting to bring people to a place of spiritual maturity as a follower of Jesus. This should be part of what we do when we try and serve and minister to people and care for people to help them grow up spiritually, to grow up spiritually. You know, who of us wants to be a part of a local church where everybody is just like, it's like a spiritual nursery? And, and, and people who are Christians just act like snotty, miserable, selfish little babies. No, we're supposed to be maturing, growing, continually developing and, and coming into the fullness of being a solid Christian. And to do that, Paul says here, we spend time warning every man. That is when someone's erring or heading down a wrong direction, we speak the truth to them. We caution them lovingly, but honestly about erring spiritually. We, we counsel people to avoid paths outside of God's will. That, that we care enough to speak the truth, to warn people of consequences of disobeying the word of God. So, we need to warn people sometimes. That's a part of helping, just like we warn our children of unhealthy things. And also, to balance out the warning, Paul says we also teach every man in all wisdom, that is, using God's wisdom to instruct and train people how to live for Christ. Teaching people the word of God, collectively in groups. But Paul says warning and teaching every man, individually discipling people, telling them the word of God, helping people and to come to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ, teaching them how to grow up as a Christian, how to handle different areas of, of everyday life. Again, and this I think happens in formal teaching settings and smaller informal teaching conversations. And these are the things, warning and teaching and instructing that are essential to bring someone into maturity to make them solid and help them to develop in their spiritual lives. The goal of Christian ministry, let me say this, is not to entertain the goats. It's to 
minister to tend and to feed the sheep. And it's so important that we remember this. We're to be bringing people as a church into spiritual health and maturity. And when a church becomes more focused on providing you know, fun activities to participate in and interesting programs and lots of social clubs, uh, you know, it's at the risk, listen, it is at the risk then of neglecting its fundamental purpose for its existence, which is spiritual development. And listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing fun things and there's nothing wrong with that. We're family. It's, it's great to have a good time and to have things that we can do and, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I'll admit, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I am the worst when it comes to being a cruise director. So I hope there's some fun people in the church because I could use a fun idea once in a while. That's not my gift. But the primary existence of a church is spiritual development. It's helping people grow and mature and be stable spiritually. That's where our focus is supposed to be, helping people develop into maturity in Christ. And in order to do that, to train, develop, he says, we have to warn and teach and present Jesus to people. These are the things that bring a church to that place. Paul then concludes verse 29 saying, to this end we labor, striving according to his working, which works in me Mightily, So he concludes with a reference to how he accomplished this. Again, two other things we see. That we have to be willing to work and sacrifice if we're going to serve people. Paul uses terms there. To this end, to accomplish that end, he says, I labor and strive. The word labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. The word strive is agonizo, was a, a term from sports and athletic games where the athlete would agonize and push themselves to the point of agony to accomplish victory and positive results. And Paul says, this is what's required to that end. If we're going to minister to people and serve and help people, it just requires good old-fashioned work. It's just work. Helping people, caring for people, serving people. You know, it's just at times... Work, energy, effort, time, losing sleep, coming early, staying late, making sacrifices, uh, you know, being willing to discipline ourselves like an athlete to do what we got to do to see results and to have victory. Again, if people, ladies and gentlemen, are willing to do all these kind of things for advancement in secular work or to be victorious in athletics, how much more should we be willing to do those kind of things to help people and to serve people? for eternal things and spiritual development, that we would labor, that we would strive, that we would work and do what's necessary to put in the time and the effort to serve people. Well, look, ministry is not just about human sweat and effort alone. Look how Paul ends verse 29. He also shows how we have to allow the power of the Lord to accomplish that work in us. Paul says, we labor and strive according to his working, which works in me mightily. Notice, it's not just all the perspiration and the labor and the sweat. Paul understood, again, Christ in him, that Christian service really was about letting the Lord within you keep ministering to people in the way he's wanted to ever since the first time he showed up on the earth. That he just wants to use your body now, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, and that we're just an instrument offering ourselves to him. Paul says it's yielding to his working which works in me mightily. One translation renders this, I work very hard at this as I depend on Christ's mighty power that works in me. 
Again, our first responsibility, Lord, I'm willing to work. I'm willing to labor. Our first responsibility is just make ourselves available. I'm available, Lord. Here I am. I'm willing to offer my time and myself, but Lord, numero uno, that's my availability. But the bigger issue is, Lord, I need your power to work through me. I'm just offering myself to you and believing that the power to serve, the enablement to do the Lord's work, listen, that all comes from Jesus. And we have to rely on his power. Lord, I'm just a vessel. And I can do everything and sweat and labor and effort, but if there is not a power of the Lord, a supernatural enablement of him just using me and working through me, nothing will be effective. We must be dependent upon his power to be effective in serving him. Always remember this concept. The Lord doesn't want you to be in the ministry. He wants the ministry to be in you, working itself out through your life. Shall we stand together?